Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the Editor-in-Chief. And today we've got a special episode. A big perk here at Pitchfork is that we get to meet legendary artists in person. We get to hang out, see them in their homes and in their studios. And we also get to share those interviews and moments with you. Last spring, I had the opportunity to talk to a few women I consider music royalty. The avant musician and performer Lori Anderson... Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth, amongst others, and the writer and editor Sinead Gleason. Kim and Sinead had just edited an anthology of essays titled This Woman's Work, which features writers like Margot Jefferson, Atessa Moshveg, Fatima Bhutto, and Kim and Sinead themselves. I started by asking Lori Anderson how she navigated the act of work in creating art, you know, while also trying to maintain her sanity. I have not. But, uh, you know, at all, it's really hard to do, you know? But, uh, and I also don't particularly think of this as work. I never really did when I was uh, starting out as an artist. Not one person I knew, uh, other artists, ever thought we would make a living doing this stuff. Ever. Never. It was, it was not at all <laughs> like the kind of professionalism that's going on now. At all. So... I was really starting out pretty close to the 60s with still that, that idea of we're going to dance down the road and, you know, just see what happens. And the people who were going to get jobs were idiots, you know. <laughs> we felt sorry for them. They were, they were just sad. So I never thought of it as work. I, I didn't think I was working. We did call it, in, I guess, in, especially in the visual art world, we called it New Works. You didn't have to think of a name for your record, like you had to think of a clever name for your record. But if you were a sculptor, it would just be New Work. You know? <laughs> so like, so in, in music, you played. You were playing music. Uh, but visual arts has a more like puritanical thing of like we're doing something very important and significant. And um, it's all a lot about work. So I never also knew who I was working for, you know, uh, which is a big issue when you're thinking of work. And I just remember a headline in a, I think a British newspaper. It was about um, something like, because of illness, Britain loses something X number of million man hours due to sickness. And I was like, Britain loses? You owe Britain? Your man hours? Who are you working for? You know, so it's a big question in this world now, which is, you know, hyper late capitalism, wherever we are, who you're doing this for. 
it's become for me more of a question than it used to be because I used to just do it because um, I, I liked it. I still do it because I like it. But I do more recently question uh, how it's working in our hyper-mediated culture where every single thing you do, you have to comment on. Did you like that? How much did you like it? How much do you like yourself today? You know, it's just you're constantly assessing yourself and in the in the sort of self-made surveillance culture that we're in and it's exhausting I think we, that to me is work <laughs> you know that I would say to be the constant uh, reports on yourself you know how well you're doing and how well the taxi ride just was you know you have to comment on that you know <laughs> how do you rate that ride you just said oh you know it's just the, the assessment, the assessment, and the and putting things in ranks is is uh, has become really out of control. <laughs> so you're talking to the editor of Pitchfork, also. <laughs> I know. Well, I have to say one thing about um, press, which I appreciate when I read it for other people, and I like to read about what's going on. But my life improved one thousand percent about ten years ago when I stopped reading absolutely anything about myself. I didn't even read the thing in that book because... <laughs> oh, the essay about you. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it was a little too close to that. I just found that I, I just have an allergy to it. It's called Fangirl, it. in fairness, so it's about Laurie and as someone who's a big fan, so yeah, maybe you wouldn't want to be it's a, it's a fandom, it's a piece about fandom. Yeah. It's and perfect I'm, that she didn't read it, though. I'm sure Did it's you? interesting, but I, I just find that... You know, when, when people, I mean, I'm sure that when people come up here and go, oh my God, you know, you, I, I just think it's, what it is, I never take that personally. I just think that person sees someone who's been in the media, they've seen them in the media, and now they're in the third dimension. And they're like, you're in the third dimension. Oh my God. And so I, I just have to go, congratulations, you see the relationship of the second to the third dimension, <laughs> the media to the real world, you know? That's all it is. It's just like, wow, that world exists and you're in it? You're a person? Good for you, you know? <laughs> so that's why I, I, I try to, to stay out of the heavily, heavily mediated world that is always grinding out opinion. Even though I have to say, I really appreciate good writing and the worst review uh, I ever got, which was about around the time I stopped reading these, <laughs> Was, was just the best written one. <laughs> and, and I wrote to this journalist and I said, you are wasting your time doing this stuff. <laughs> Write a novel. Five years later, about five years ago, I got a novel in the mail from this guy. He said, here's my novel. And it was really good. It was really, really good. So, you know, I just think uh, that... Anyway, he was probably was, trying to get um, your attention. <laughs> yeah. Did you have something to add to that? I saw you. Oh, I don't know. Just, I always feel um, like um, I want to leave my body <laughs> when something comes up to me. Or, you know, I just kind of feel like it's more about them that it really is about me. And, you know, I try to be, not, you know, gracious about it because it is for them. But I mean, as Anne wrote, I'll, I'll tell you this much. As Anne wrote in her essay about Lori, she felt like she left her body. 
in, in that moment. In, in the moment that she approached Laurie, she said there was this magnetic pull that she had to do it. She didn't know why, but she had to say hello. <laughs> and she said that when she approached you, what ended up coming out of her mouth was something like nonsense, just like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so it's like a mutual of a fan and the person being admired both blacking out at once, it seems like. <laughs> well, a tangential question to, to the first part of it is that there's also, in that same Lucinda Williams essay, Jen refers to her as being, quote-unquote, nobody's girl. And this idea, especially in years past, of if someone didn't fit into a genre or a scene or was exploratory in the way that they approached their art, that it could really affect their confidence or their art or their opportunity to make art in the future. And... I'm wondering for for everyone on stage if you have had or if you can remember that like formative battle of confidence with yourself that you won that you triumphed over um, and it can be from any any part of your life but something that felt like I can be nobody's girl I'm my own well I guess when I made this solo record a couple years ago I worked with this producer in a way I'd never worked before making a record, and I just didn't know what was really going to come out. And I didn't really think about how it was going to fit in with the current music scene or whatever. And I, and I took a lot of things that I've been influenced by when I first moved to New York. Because I find those things like no-wave music, you know, bands like DNA, still like incredibly modern. And I was not taught to be a musician. I kind of fell into it, sort of post-punk, the way a lot of people did. And for me, it was also an escape from the art world. <laughs> but I just kind of, I didn't really think about it. So I was actually really surprised at how well it was received. Did it feel good? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I'm a constant sort of self-doubter, so... It's just, I just have to get used to it. Sinead, I'm, I'm wondering the same for you. A moment where you questioned yourself and came through it stronger, essentially. I wanted to write for years and I didn't write. And I think there's a lot of reasons that hold people back. I think fear is a big one. Um, what would I have to say that anybody would want to hear? And I had a really serious illness in my late 20s. I had a... a I got leukemia, I had a lung clot, and loads of things went very badly wrong, and it happened very quickly. I just got married, so it was a really terrible time. But I remember my parents were coming in to see me, and I knew my mother would absolutely freak out and be very upset. Um, and I thought, I have, to, I have to say something to her, I have to present something to her, I have to tell her something so that she will maybe feel... And maybe I was saying this much for myself, and I don't remember saying this, but apparently I said to her when she came around the curtain, I said, I'm not going to die, I'm going to write a book. And she, it, again, I don't remember this. And then when I eventually did, I published a book of essays called Constellations. I talk a lot in that book about illness as a kind of interruption and a disruption. In a weird way, I, I don't think it ever made me think about not writing again. I think it's, there's a before and after with illness. And for me, I think the before was not writing, not being creative. And it made me never want to go back to not being creative. And, and regretting all those years I didn't do it and regretting all the fear and the nervousness around it. And any time I teach people a big part of it is people thinking 
I can't do it or nobody will want to see it or read it or feel it. And I think that's the same with making music, it's the same with taking photographs, making film, it's all this Venn diagram of art. But we talk ourselves out of it a lot and I think what lots of the people did in this book, I think went to places that they did thought they were going to write an essay about an album or an artist, but ended up going quite, quite deep. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Kim, Laurie and Sinead. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. The anthology of writing is called This Woman's Work. It's edited by Kim Gordon and Sinead Gleason and features artists and writers like Laurie Anderson. I joined Kim, Laurie, and Sinead to talk about some of the essays in the book. Like the one that Kim wrote about her friend Yoshimi, her bandmate in Free Kitten, and the drummer for the Japanese noise rock band Boredoms. That essay also happened to be one of Sinead's favorites. This brilliant, in, in your piece with Yoshimi, one of my favorite parts of the whole book is Yoshimi talking about her, her family and her uncle, her uncle who predicted the day that he would die, and he died on that day. Um, and just her mother and her father, like it's such a, you got so much out of her in that piece. It was unreal. Yeah, that was, um, <laughs> it was, it was great because I'd known her for years and I, she spoke English sort of. I mean, we would laugh and have our jokes in the band. I just always wondered how, what was it that made her such an unusual, unconventional person in a culture that, you know, favors uh, conformity and, and sees that as like a strength. You know, she was like, oh yeah, I had perfect pitch, but I didn't care, or I didn't know what it was, and I played the piano with my toes. <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> it was like, uh, and it was so her, you know, but it was all this stuff articulated, and yeah, her whole family was really kind of eccentric. How did it feel to be friends with someone for so long, and then be able to have this like freewheeling, intimate, conversation where you were learning so much about them despite having you know created music with them um what did that feel like did... I mean it wasn't surprising in a way because she's a very funny person and likes to laugh a lot um but you know we did it not in person so you know it was through a translator it was just incredibly sad deeply satisfying to actually I mean I can't wait to see her again <laughs> uh yeah I haven't been to Japan in quite a while I was dying at her thinking that the band was named Free Kitchen. Um, that was one of my yeah. favorite parts. <laughs> yeah. I also saw a through line in the book um, when you mentioned Maggie Nelson's essay and her brilliant friend, Lassa, and Otessa's essay, you know, being formally music trained, but it all came back to this one teacher, Valentina. And you really see in this subtle way through like half of the essays in the book that they all return to, to a woman who is teaching. And I wonder if there is an early or formative, similarly, musical kinship that you've formed with a woman 
that kind of informed your perspective and the way that you created art going forward? Lori. Well, it was more um, more like visual art, I think, mm -hmm. with, with this person. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a kindergarten, actually. And uh, <laughs> it was, I, I just remember our art teacher who uh, would come in. Our, our lives were ruled by um, bells. I'm from here, from Chicago, a little bit out from, yeah. Glen Ellen. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so she would uh, come in like after the bell rang, you know. <laughs> the bell would ring and we'd, do, we'd just like little automatons get up and go to the next class and then another bell would ring. Our, it was ruled by bells. And so she would, she would waltz in, she a huge hat and go, people, what should we paint? How about something like with just purple? I don't know. And And I was like, wow. And then the thing that really, really impressed me more than anything was that she would leave before the bell rang. <laughs> she would just leave. She would, you know. And I was like, I'm going to be like her. <laughs> she made a huge impression on me. It, it was, I, I, I decided then to be an artist. It was because she wore crazy clothes, but mostly she was free. She didn't have to follow any rules, no rules at all. So she's always been top of my head, kind of protecting me as just kind of, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Just come in and paint big things. It was also that it was a woman, I think, that, that really made a, a huge impression. Because most of the women I knew were really the authority figures. You know, they were the teachers going to read this book, the mom eat this dinner. And on the other hand, generally, uh, the men I knew, especially my father, uh, he was just a, a, like a jokester and, uh, and, and somebody who loved to have fun. And he, and he let's go get some ice cream. Let's, let's, let's stay up all night. And, and I thought, wow, oh, men are these crazy characters who have like not a care in the world. You know? <laughs> it took me a lifetime to, to realize it wasn't necessarily true. So, anyway, but I think it's those first things that, that you see about who you could be, you know, and that plants itself in your heart really early. For me, she did that. And I, I'm somebody who loves teachers. I'm always looking for teachers. Teachers are everything to me, and I've had so many great ones of, of so many kinds that I'm kind of addicted to people and I just like to learn from people. So I, I'm very, very, very grateful to teachers. You know, so she was, she was the first one. Shane, is there someone in your life? I mean, there's just, I, I, I think I, I spent a lot of time in hospital when I was a teenager as well. And I think that I would not have go, if you, if you get sick when you're in your teens, it's a very you know, isolating time. And I think if I had not had books and music I think I would have lost my mind. Um, for me, those years were, I mean, it's, it's people like I had a godmother who, who bought me books and turned me into a reader. I don't think I'd be one and I'd never be a writer if I hadn't been a reader. Um, you know, listening to Kate Bush as a teenager and then remembering that, you know, Kate Bush wrote her own music and had a number one when she was 17. I mean, a teenage girl writing a number one at a time when the charts were full of songs only written by men or men writing for women. I, I found it's, she's been sort of a benchmark that's sort of carried me through. I've been lucky to interview her a couple of times. And, and again, that, that work ethic, that there mightn't be albums every few years, but you know she's always 
doing things and working on things and the next thing she does will be something completely different to to what she did before so oh look i could be listing people off for a really long time but yeah too many too many and that's a good thing you know and there's and there'll be people coming up in the next few generations who, who I'm, I'm looking to as well who are making amazing music and writing making beautiful art and writing incredible novels and stories so as as a child of immigrants i was especially drawn to ian lee's essay and fatima buto's essay both of them wrote about songs from their youth ian wrote about finding herself on a road trip privately singing songs from her childhood in china knowing that they were propaganda but finding comfort in them nonetheless and Fatima wrote about the, quote, bruised longing and joy of hearing cricket anthems from her home country of Afghanistan. And it made me think of Danielle Smith um, and her great essay about Whitney Houston reimagining um, the national anthem in the 90s. But all of that writing kind of centers in finding comfort and familiarity, even as your, you know, adult, enlightened, brained, recognizes that there is something awry within the art itself um, or within the context surrounding the art. And I'm wondering if there is anything that you can think of that kind of solicits that same kind of complicated emotion for you. I certainly have that from my understanding of music through my family lineages too, so. Well, it's not like that I really listened to the Carpenters. Um, <laughs> when they first came out, but, you know, it was associated with, to me, with um, bank jingles, sort of, and, you know, very conservative, the establishment. But I rediscovered them <laughs> in the 80s. <laughs> you know, removed from the context of the time, you could actually just listen to the music. And, I mean, sh she had the most beautiful voice and sexy and the production was very interesting, you know, layered and, you know, incredible, kind of advanced for its time. You know, and then so I, you know, got into her story. And I mean, I still, I feel when I hear those Carpenter songs, it really almost makes me tear up. They're so soulful. I was, last week I was very briefly in Dusseldorf, and I made a tiny pilgrimage to Kling Klang to see Kraftwerk's studio. And there was a big exhibition on about Kraftwerk and synthesizers and had lots of um, old Moogs and Japanese synths and a thing called a, a cross on air. I was telling Laurie about it. It's a very early theremin. Um, and I, I'm going to a festival this year and I'm bringing my children to see Kraftwerk. And I remembered years ago when everybody was listening to pop music and it was all, you know, very much Madonna and everything that was on, you know, MTV. And there used to be this show on Irish telly that played... Um, videos and one day I happened upon these four strange looking dudes standing behind keyboards and it was Kraftwerk doing music non-stop which still remains I think a song that I've said I'd have played at my funeral um, that has just never kind of left me and I and because I hadn't seen anything like that I was like a 10 year old girl living in Dublin and then this song came on and it's again it's it's robotic it's very long it's very repetitive and yet I find there's something immeasurably sad about it and I don't know what it is um, and the idea that the music will always go on um, I just love it and it's it's always they always play it last at the gigs it's the last song that they go off but just that song always like I literally get can feel the the emotion about it when I when I hear it every time we'll be back with more of my conversation with Kim Laurie and Sinead 
My conversation with Kim, Sinead, and Lori took place right as the draft decision to overturn Roe versus Wade was leaked, and I had to ask them how they were feeling. Well, I think there, there are several ways to, to react to, to this in terms of what you do in your own work or how, how that might express itself and what, what freedom actually means in, in the, the things that you make and how you present that to the world and whether people can hear that or not. And the second is really just um, is activism. And I think that, that uh, I am so impressed by the, by the tactics of Me Too and Black Lives Matter, even though both uh, had to tread over a lot of bodies to get there, you know? It's, I, I um, when I think of Me Too, it's what was accomplished in that, the, that short period of time uh, wasn't accomplished in the last hundred years of women saying, you really should respect us. You know, so uh, I, I'm reluctant to say that it uh, it takes that kind of thing, but we're not going to wait around for for people to offer a solution. You have to really take it. And I, I've learned a lot from the those two movements. Uh, and they and they do they do tend to be led by the people who are most affected. So uh, I, I think uh, that radical uh, movement is it, it, reaction is necessary. I mean, like lying down on the street kind of thing because those things work. Um, the last time I was really doing a lot of, of political work was really uh, 10 years ago. So I, I've been looking for uh, some, uh, uh, which, in, in Occupy, and I found that, that uh, so many people who worked in that were really crushed by it. I mean, I still have friends who have uh, the FBI in front of their house parked every day. You know, there, there, it was like people are determined not to let that happen again. So it has to happen again. <laughs> so I, I'm really looking forward to taking part in that and making sure that we can make our voices heard. I, when I think of, like, what's going on now, I, I feel like the, the liberal left, the people who used to be speaking out and, you know, and uh, let's say our intelligentsia, I don't hear them anymore. I, not, a, not a word. What happened to them? It's a really unique moment now and, and a really wonderful opportunity um, to uh, think about what it is that you want and what you're willing to do to make it happen. So I, I think it's a very, very uh, incredible uh, moment to act. I agree with Laurie. <laughs> I, I think that um, it, it's important to activate the corporate Dems because they've had a long time to get a bill passed to sanctify Roe versus Wade, and they haven't done it. I mean, they're pretty ineffectual all around. Let's just say they suck, you know. And and I think they really need to be shook. You know, it's like. Their job has become protecting their own power and the power of the corporations in this country. And I think it's important maybe to look at the history of labor in this country and see how they grew their movements and what they did and how they came to be effectual. And 
that is maybe the most optimistic thing that's happening right now are the different actions to unionize, um, you know, like Starbucks. And I don't know, I just think that it's all kind of part of the same problem in a sense. But right now we need to really focus on what's happening with uh, women's rights, basically. Thank you. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. Thanks to the Chicago Humanities Festival for hosting this conversation. Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Ryan Domble is our showrunner. And Jessica Grimulia is our music supervisor. I'm Pooja Patel. Thanks for listening.